1: I am the writer and
2: producer of the Dungeon and Dragons podcast, God's Fall. My name's Dylan. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a physicist from Canada. Welcome to to Kill kill Every every monster. Monster. In this episode, we are featuring the Mimic. Monster Manual says that Mimics are shape-shifting predators able to take on the form of inanimate objects to lure creatures to their doom. In dungeons, these cunning creatures most often take the form of doors and chests, having learned that such forms attract a steady stream of prey. We are joined by Robert Reeves.
1: Rob is a designer, writer, and editor who you might remember from a viral post about his mom's toothpaste and the extensive network of targeted ad tracking surrounding it. He live streams the lawful, the chaotic, and the ugly. He's with us today because he released a booklet called This Booklet is a Mimic, available on DriveThruRPG. You can find him on Twitter, Twitch, and other social media platforms that don't start with twa at Robert G. Reeve. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hi, hello. I am so happy to be here. We are happy to have, we are actually very happy to have you because we had no idea how to do a Mimic show without you.
2: (laughs) Anybody who's listened to the first handful of episodes knows that we almost focused the entire first season on fully sapient creatures.
1: We had some outlined rules and one of the rules was the creatures had to be sapient. And then we abandoned that, like we abandoned other rules very,
2: very quickly.
3: I'll be honest with you, I usually prefer sapient creatures because I think that the storytelling potential is much greater when when you get in, like, uh, emotions, concerns, uh, uh, things that are beyond just, like, base survival. Because if it's just, like, if it's just a, a dog or a wolf, it's like,
2: what do you want? Food. Like, it doesn't get much deeper than that. Which is, uh, you know, quick look behind the veil, specifically where that second question comes in. Because at the end of the day, there are the three categories. You've got fully intelligent creatures that are sapient, you know, beings. You can't call a doppelganger a monster, even if it's evil, because it's, it's a guy. You can't call a dog evil, because it's a dog. It's just an animal. Monsters exist in the middle ground, where it's not only unintelligent in the same way that an animal is but also it's inherently malicious Mm. that's where that line sat for me and that's why we we set up that line in the first place is like can we start looking at these things and finding the creatures where it's like no there is so much malice in this thing that it can't be treated like a person it's just a thing that exists to cause harm Versus, you know, the bulk of the monster manual, which turns out to just be guys that do harm in cool ways if you let them do harm, but also are mostly just dudes.
3: I see a really interesting moral angle in what you guys are doing here. It's like you're almost looking for monsters that you don't have to feel guilty about killing. (laughs) D&D has taken like a real hard look at their,
1: well, they have taken a look at their races and they have made some changes to help Repair some of the bad things that have been written in, but they're monsters. They've done nothing, right? They're monsters. They just have a lot of anti-Semitism and racism and
2: a lot
1: of ugly misogyny. misogyny. So, like, part of the show is an examination of that. The other part of the show is this exact, I you know, idea you just hit on. Like, if they're thinking, if they have culture, if they exist and have lives, like, you can't just run through a dungeon and slaughter them and be a good. Person? Where is the heroics in literally diving into someone's home and slaughtering them just to take their gold? What are we doing here? And are there other ways we can have fun and play in this space?
2: With the other side to that being like, once you acknowledge that they're intelligent, you have to write a more interesting story.
1: If they're just a horde of things, then they're just like, why not just use zombies? Why not just use bears? Like, what's the difference?
2: Anything that has a claw claw bite is a bear and you can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> it's just a bear. You tell me that it's a golem, but if all it does is a claw claw bite, I know it's not a claw claw bite. Sometimes bears can breathe sleep breath for some reason. It's so still a bear. Claw Claw Bites or Punch Attacks sometimes. It's it's still a bear. <laughs> it, the, the way
3: that you're talking about it, it just makes me think of like Street Fighter combos. Heavy Punch, Light Punch, Heavy Kick. Right, AAB, AAB over and over again. Right, and then and then like the weirdness comes in like, do you do a Hadouken? Like, and what does that, what form does that Hadouken take? I think one of the interesting things here is like, with Sentient Monsters, the way to let the players feel justified in in harming them suddenly becomes like how do you make them an asshole? And I think that the mimic has a lot of room to become the asshole.
2: Rob, what is a mimic to you? To me, a mimic is
3: one of the biggest cultural contributions. That Dungeons and Dragons has ever made. There are so many cultural things that that have transcended DD that that people know about outside of the tabletop space. Uh, I think that the biggest is the experience point. Because every video game, like, now has a a bar for personal progress. I think another huge one is the alignment chart. Everyone knows it. You don't have to know D&D to see that, like, tic-tac-toe grid filled out with, like, different axes of behavior. And I think that the mimic is on that level. (laughs) We sometimes feel like uh, there are things lurking behind us, and we turn around and everything looks normal. And, and something must have moved there. The first mimic-like thing I remember encountering, it was an action figure from a Ghostbusters lineup that I had when I was a kid. And it was, like, in retrospect, like the stupidest action figure to get a kid. It's, it's a toilet, and eyes pop up out of the tank of the toilet, and a tongue comes out of the bowl. I need rest. Oh! It's them guys! Go! I flip my lid when he's scared. Ah! It's a howl when he's scared.
4: Ah! The real Ghostbusters, two from Canada. Blast Ah!
3: And if you're a kid, like I was, I was slightly older than potty training by the time I got this. But like, if you're a kid and you're potty training and you see like the toilet monster, that ain't. Good. That's gonna set you back. Anyway, I wore diapers until I was ten. It's like Beauty and the Beast if they're all trying to eat you. Yeah. Lumiere, the the candle. Yeah. You just disappear into that giant
2: armoire, just sucks you in and you're gone. (laughs) Because I know we've gotten a few people who've said that they're like relatively new DMs. Let's be real explicit. What is a Mimic?
3: A Mimic is an amorphous blob in its like native form. Like it looks like literally, it's like the ooze monster. It eats not by uh, hunting you like a, like a single-celled organism would. It doesn't like, like scoop you up and absorb you into its body in this like, like slow, uh, like, like gross kind of way. It is much more aggressive. It lurks in the background as an inanimate object, and it can take any, any form. In the original Monster Manual, I think in the 70s, it was specifically, they could be wood or stone, they couldn't be metal. They were only things that like fit like Gary Gygax's mental model of what a dungeon should look like. And they were always like a a gotcha from a troll DM. The mimic is like almost there for the DM to like just maliciously mock the party oh, it says it's indistinguishable. You had no way of knowing. So now I get to have a monster spring out at you and go, ha ha, you idiots. And it's just like, it's, it's so trollish as a DM, but like very much fits my mental model for like, what kind of DM Gary Gygax probably was. So I'm not surprised whatsoever.
1: Yeah, he does feel like the DM who has to always show everyone at the table that they're smarter than you are.
3: But, like, the DM has ultimate power. So, like, obviously they're going to win every time. So, like, yeah. So, what's
2: the point? If I want to, I automatically win. Like, that's just how the game runs. The whole
1: game becomes this weird power trip about how close can I get. It's like edging as a
2: DM, it's the weirdest fucking thing, and I don't get it. So, the false appearance ability holds over into fifth edition. It shows up in the gargoyle and I think the Gale of Dur. Or, I'm probably not saying that, but like there's a couple other things where they specifically like... It's one of those weird bits where the Player's Handbook introduces the concept of passive perception and then immediately just, at every turn, destroys that mechanic.
1: False appearance. Object form only. While the mimic remains motionless, it is indistinguishable from an ordinary object. Mimics can alter their outward texture to resemble wood, stone, and other basic materials, and they have evolved to assume the appearance of objects that other creatures are likely to come into contact with. A mimic in its altered form is nearly unrecognizable until potential prey blunders into its reach, whereupon the monster sprouts pseudopods and attacks.
3: I think like animated, animated swords, animate flying swords, animated armor, rug of devouring. Yeah. Any of these like malicious hidden objects, like the where's Waldo of murder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing is to me, it's strange to give them that false appearance ability because like, again, for listeners, false appearances explicitly says you cannot tell Meanwhile, if you just had players who had no reason to suspect anything suspicious was going on and they have a passive perception value, if you just say that while in this form it has a inherent stealth check. Make make it a flat 20 that way the one guy who took the alert feat finally gets his day in the sunlight. I as a DM actually like that it doesn't. And and this gets into like I think uh, experienced DMs
3: versus junior DMs. Junior DMs I think when you when you're first finding your feet, you want some kind of hard mechanic that says, like, here's a hard number, here's the skill to roll for this situation. But I like that for experienced players, they, they might be used to this mechanical model of like, oh, I've, I've taken the right skills or feats or whatever mm-hmm. to shore up my passive perception, so nothing should be able to sneak up on me as a player. I like that this ability, only a couple monsters have, short circuits that, and that that, even if you are incredibly perceptive, there's still something here that that breaks the rules and turns the game almost creative, yeah, where as a as a dungeon master, it's now my responsibility to give you enough context clues to know there could be a mimic here. And it's your responsibility as a player to pay attention to those clues. Using a mimic early is a good way to make your players paranoid for the whole rest of the campaign. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Once you meet a mimic,
3: now you're like, oh,
1: fuck, anything could be a mimic. And and without that ability for it to seamlessly blend it, it
3: doesn't quite have that fear. To also not overdo it, because, because I think if you overdo it, then it's not special or fun anymore.
2: Absolutely.
3: Yeah. But I do love breaking my own rules. I did uh, an encounter arc where mimics were an invasive species. Almost everything was a mimic. And then the joke became when something wasn't a mimic. Yeah. And it was like, oh, can we can we trust this sword to
2: just be a sword? <laughs> this sort of comes into the two the two angles of approach to mimics that I've seen. And I I just want to know mimics as fauna versus image as magical mishap. I like to have my cake and eat it too. Because
3: in the uh in the lore said that wizards engineered mimics to defend their treasure from adventurers. Oh, which is why they are shaped like chests and everything. Okay. Some mad scientist somewhere made the mimic on purpose.
2: How fucked is that world? If all your most brilliant engineers and scientists have to design explosive test tubes because someone keeps stealing their shit? How many times? How many times does an adventurer steal your shit before you turn that chest into like, no, that chest is gonna be angry next time?
1: It's not step one. Yeah. You know, you bought the vault, you bought the locks, you maybe have a guard or two, you cast a bunch of spells, and finally you're like,
3: I'm gonna invent a whole creature. Did this come before or after you tried like knock or, or like, uh like arcane lock. Did, did arcane lock predate that? Or
1: he's just that guy who like every answer is, I'm going to invent an entire creature.
2: I have to assume that this is the same guy that invented like the owl bear and the manticore like- <laughs> Right. It's just one asshole. It's just one guy who's like, what can I do?
3: I think what you're asking about the mimic here is, is very similar to like the owl bear thing. And I think that DD tries to uh, almost classify this creature as like a monstrosity, and they try to say monstrosities are things that are often taken uh, created by magic. I frequently like to think that uh, these cr- often when we're like lab breeding animals in the real world, they're uh, they're they're sterile. They like they can't reproduce, but that's no fun. I think that in in a fantasy world, it's way more interesting that these like lab grown creatures do break out and do turn into like, like crazy cartoonish Night at the Museum, Zootopia, like, <laughs> like problems. Yeah, hundred percent.
4: You rap on a roll, I rap Delta guy. You say dope fresh, I say hana fly. Baby, with isotopes, different nuclei. On the same table, forever living by.
1: It seems to me like mimics would proliferate quickly. Like there would be an explosion of mimic. So what would hold them back from
3: just basically taking over everything? Some creatures have a reproduction strategy of like, I make one baby and I put a lot of time and effort into this one baby. Right. And others have a reproduction strategy of, I make a ton of babies and I'm not emotionally attached to any of them. And the ones that make it, make it. That's Mimics for me. Yeah. And Mimics are that for me because of... and and i i'm not the only person to have this idea but uh but it's going in the booklet the mimic booklet uh mimics lay eggs and the first thing that any mimic even in in egg in like larva or pupa state even as an egg the first thing it learns to mimic is like local currency
1: It makes perfect sense. It makes sense why they'd go after an adventurer first to have food, to make a new baby, and then to collect enough coins to be able to show the baby what it needs Mm. to be, right? And then if there's coins, adventurers will, you know, come to collect the coins, and when they come to collect the coins, they collect the baby. And that's how the baby gets out into the world.
2: It's like mimics as, as like cuckoos. I also think that this solves that sort of that, that propagation problem because if you look at the mimic it has a move speed of 15 feet I got issues with that but like we'll, we'll get there Yeah, we'll we'll get there uh, it's got a move speed of 15 feet the kids aren't going to be that fast they're not getting anywhere and they are as far as we can figure highly carnivorous which means like if you just have a mimic in like a dungeon and has a child that then comes up in the in the dungeon well that that's comp- that's competition especially if they breed in like these huge sets they probably just consume each other by the end of the day which makes sense then to get the baby as far away from the parent as possible and if the baby immediately takes the form of coins and one one guy like manages to get away from the mimic, but he grabs a bag full of coins and then he brings it to a bank. And then that bank disperses coins, depending on how long it takes for a mimic to grow up. Like, OK, now 40 banks all have mimics in them.
1: So many creatures and plants have like evolved with us. Like marijuana is a perfect example. Like it has been wildly successful because it has gotten us to plant it everywhere, and to take care of it like our children. (laughs) What a hugely successful plant to get us to do all the
3: work for it. There's definitely a a symbiosis with adventurers. Like, something about adventurers is is unique to, like, how a mimic survives. I think, like, you could get a mimic in a city. Um, Ed Greenwood did an article uh, for Dungeon magazine way back in the day, it was like the first thing trying to like flesh out the mimic and make it something bigger. And there was a great quest hook in there about a mimic that had mimicked a statue in a town and and was like eating drunks and homeless people. They sent city guards to find the mimic and the mimic ate the guards. And then finally like I love I love this quest hook because his resolution there, is the unlikeliest person to fix the problem. An architect, like a city planner, who looks and is like, I didn't put that statue there. Wait a minute, I've heard of this.
2: So Rob, is the Mimic a monster?
3: The Mimic is definitely a monster. The Mimic is a monster because sometimes they do have language they have thoughts but they're not high functioning they're they're bestial the only real motivation that's ever ascribed to them in the the monster manual
2: is food it's not even described as like hunger it's consume it's just a it is as you mentioned a bestial instinct to guiltlessly kill a monster, it needs to be an asshole. And mimics are such fucking pricks. Owl bears, it's
1: like, oh, I could tame this, raise it from a baby. It can become part of like a like a really big dog. At no point does it feel like a mimic
3: would be safe around you. I think you could look at like a, a, a baby displacer beast, like a displacer beast kitten or an owlbear cub and be like, that's so cute. God, I could. I really could. But I think if you looked at a baby mimic, you probably look at it as like a an egg sack of a wolf spider.
2: Yeah, it's an unpleasant creature.
3: Like like sometimes you get like a micro like a little tiny like magnifying glass up on a spider and you're like, oh, you've got cute little eyes and like you let me play you the song of my people. You know, like I've seen the meme. But like when you actually think about keeping it as a pet and having it around, you're like, no, that thing's gonna eat me. If a python gets out, it will
1: eat something. It will kill and eat something. It's not just gonna hang out. Like, like there, are just, there are just sometimes creatures that are never ever gonna be cuddly. And it, does, it definitely feels like a mimic is one of them.
3: I could absolutely see adventures um, projecting human qualities onto a mimic. But as a yeah. DM, if I were gonna play with that, I would make it very clear that like the mimic doesn't care. Right. Like, like you can, you can pretend the mimic is your cute pet and, and you're going to, you're going to tickle it and it's going to like turn into a sea urchin in your hands.
2: <laughs> then we have one final thing to cover. How would you change the mimic?
3: I'll take this from a, a mechanics perspective, and a storytelling perspective. I think that there are a couple of small mechanical things that would make the Mimic much more interesting from an encounter design perspective. The Mimic has a speed of 15 feet. yeah, And it's shape-shifting action takes a whole action. It's not a bonus action. So I think that giving it more speed and making it shape-shift faster is is a dual threat that makes the monster far scarier, far more of a horror movie monster, far more interesting for multi-room encounters. And I think that making it slow is like they made an ecological statement about what the what the monster is. The monster got there before you did and it sits and it waits. Maybe for years. Like maybe the monster just in in object form it just slows its metabolism and he's like I'm I'm going to get my one meal every three years out of this entire human. But I think that mechanically, that's not interesting for the players to see. It doesn't need to shape change in the middle of combat. But I think that it being a a full action combined with the slow speed means that functionally, we're never going to get the mimic in a position where in the middle of the fight, it's going to be able to outdistance the party far enough to reevaluate and then change into something else and and have this fun scene where the, the players have to walk into another room and guess, guess the mimic. It's literally just a thing that sits there and waits. It's just a trap with eyes and teeth. Yeah, it's a trap with eyes. Yeah, it's an ambush predator. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind.
4: This is the story of Harry Dalowitz, and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
3: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Rob, how did you get here?
3: If I'm a mimic in a bank vault, how did I get here? I think that as a Mimic, I have been here since I was a wee little coin egg. And I think that I was in a a, a Mommy Mimic that was a chest. Uh, almost like a, I don't know, a wolf spider's egg sack or maybe a, a possum carrying around all of its young on its body. My My Mom Mimic saw an adventurer come into a dungeon and resisted the temptation to to blow the ruse and that the adventurers looted this mimic without ever knowing it was a mimic and maybe even got some real coins in with the fake coins the adventurers just took all of this money out of this chest and left and like mom mimic after they left was just like (laughs) the symbiosis is complete The adventurers go and spend those coins at the tavern at the local general store. And in this highly sophisticated world you're running, also a bank.
2: And so this bank was not the adventurers doing. This was, you know, the week after the adventurers have left town and the tavern owner has made this like puts up the sign. We're closed for the fucking weekend. I'm going into town and goes in and makes this huge deposit. I have changed hands so many times. Some of it was gambling that the players did, and it got back to the tavern owner. But it really, like, he came in, and he told that story to the teller of these adventurers, made a big score, and he just had a stellar weekend, the tips were amazing. So I'm making this deposit, and in that deposit, in that hefty ass bag that he handed over
3: was you just a little guy as a baby mimic away from my mother maybe even from my siblings like I'm questioning my own instincts and I don't know is this the moment I should bite a finger every time that I'm being changed hands and then maybe I've panicked and I've waited too long I'm the shy mimic I'm the blushing mimic that like is, is, is now in the bank vault alone
2: And it's been about a year where you've been sitting and waiting and there was that time where they heard all of the coins sort of spill out of the purse and they came back in and there was this nice little sort of jewelry box that was after a couple of weeks. But by the end of a year, you know, they, they just left the box alone. They went and they cleaned up the other coins. They put it in one of the safety deposit box. The next time they come in a few months later, there's suddenly a chest sitting there. And no one asks any questions. Aram. Yeah. You've been in this industry for a while. We have. You and the boys. Me and my fellow gnome brothers.
1: Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs.
3: We're ready to believe you.
2: A couple deposits came in from that town shortly after those adventurers left. And in the last year or so, there have been some fucking disasters at banks. There have been people getting attacked, and they've been finding mimics. All of those transactions trace back to money that moved through this bank. Well, you pull up to the bank, and the bank has been closed. It's been a bank holiday for three days. It hasn't been a bank holiday. The bank has declared that it's a bank holiday, and as it would happen, they can do that. (laughs) They're the bank. You see a dwarf come out. He's five feet tall. Oh, I is tall for a dwarf. He is a tall dwarf. Gentlemen, finally. Uh, I was told you work uh, quietly, and uh, the siren sort of belies that, but I'm also told you're good. So we're going to see... We work quietly,
1: but you have to advertise all the time.
2: Uh, That's that's one way to do things, I suppose. Listen,
1: name's Peter.
2: Puts out a hand. He like looks down and he like looks across the group. Gives a little wipe, shakes your hand, uh, pulls out a napkin, like sort of wipes because you guys in there like. We're greasy. With with Egon tinkering, like, it's not even like your oh, the filthy pores. It's, oh, the filthy dirty guy.
1: Like, we may have battery acid on us. Like, there's a, there could be any number of
2: fluids. No, I get it. It's fair.
1: Yeah. So what is the, uh, what's the general problem you've got
2: here? Um, please, please, inside. He leads you in. There's the huge marble columns. It's beautiful. The sort of craftsmanship that only dwarves are pulling off. And of course as he gets you closer you see the other bit of architecture that only a dwarf pulls off. Gnomes have done pretty good but there's a certain bit of solidity that you need dwarven manufacture for. That's the vault door. Well inside the building, well away from where people are walking around, he just kind of drops the hushed tone, drops the congeniality, and he goes, Look, you know why you're here. We think there may have been mimics that moved through our vault. If they find out there's a mimic in here and you can't get it out, then no one withdraws money. No one can withdraw money. Any banknotes we have issued are valueless because the money that they are backed by is inaccessible. The entire business community in this town relies on the fact that their money passes through our vault. And if we can't access it, absolutely no business in this town functions. We'll lose everything. The town will lose everything.
1: As you're talking... One of my gnomes, a taller, thinner one than the others, walks past you and has pulled out this contraption. They all have a bunch of gear on them. They have these huge backpacks with like these uh these like crossbow-like weapons that have huge cords that go to the back. Raymond is in a full suit of armor that actually like is mechanized as he's walking around. They gave Artifice some crazy powers. <laughs> They've all got a bunch of tech, but Egon has pulled out this little like unfolding umbrella thing, and it kind of lights up and he's waving it around and it detects magic. So as he's walking towards the vault, he's waving it back and forth.
2: There is a bit of confusion. You know, artificer tech is not uh, immediately accessible to the main public, and you see the the dwarf who I've avoided naming so far gestures over to one of his employees who comes over takes a look at it and goes oh it's a, it's a, it's a detect magic sorry it's a and he starts calling things out like no that's a protection spell that's one ours that's also us this is no, ev- those, those readings are completely normal I appreciate the thoroughness and he basically comes over to Egon and starts like trying to help him walk through the readings that he's getting he's being very above board there are a couple of things that he's absolutely sketchy about There are a couple spells that just get the explanation of that's one of ours. We'll deactivate it for you. Don't ask questions. We'll just
1: turn it off. Yeah. And so as they're walking, uh, Peter walks up to the dwarf who still seems a little uncomfortable with this. And he's like, look, guy, we're professionals here. We know what we're doing. We've got this well in the bag. As sure as your name is Hammer Rocksmith, we're going to take care of this.
2: Best of luck, boys. Get the gate for him. Big handshake. We'll do it after you come out. That's a deal. The vault opens. Who's opening the vault? This is like one of the security guards, except the security guards are all halflings. It's a metropolitan area.
3: A very short metropolitan area. We've got dwarves, we've got <laughs> halflings, we've got gnomes.
2: No, no, the, the wizard was, uh, the tech guy's a human.
3: Okay, right. (laughs) Not a lot of elves
2: actually. Tallest man in town.
1: Yeah. It actually makes a lot of sense for halflings to like have a bank security thing because if they just make access doors where only they can get in.
2: (laughs) The door is relatively large. It's got that standard sort of bank vault form of a like six-foot diameter circle. It is made so that all of the actual like functioning is internal, there are a couple things that you can see where they've had to, like, make little panels accessible for maintenance, stuff like that. And especially when they were dealing with this, they've got everything opened up to be able to short circuit a few spells. The major things that you would know. That vault door is built not to open unless open from the outside. When you push on it, it is copper. If you wanted to, you could get through it, it would take enough time that people would notice. But the major benefit is that if you're going to try to cut into thick copper, you're going to have a sharp thing stuck, and it's going to electrocute you. As far as the inside of the vault goes, there's an old legend about a sort of decrepit dwarven kingdom. was taken over by a dragon, and it's one of those things that when anyone else hears the story, it's it sounds horrible. The dwarves were overcome by greed, they built up these piles of gold, and then a dragon came and took it all from them and destroyed the dwarves. And the dwarves remember it as, but if we have a big, cool pile of gold, it's so cool that even dragons want it. When dwarves build a vault, they keep meticulous track of it, but if you're picturing, like, safe deposit boxes along the wall, and, like, carefully regimented, like, shelves, no money on ground, pile, art leaning in a corner, couple of swords in a rack. We're not sure why they're valuable. They're in the vault, they're probably valuable. Just a treasure hoard. It's a Scrooge McDuck vault. Absolutely.
3: I think if I hear the door, even though there's plenty here to to get lost in, I think I'm going to knock over anything I can, including some of these swords. And I think that the very first thing I would do is probably try and drag one of these swords up front, and, like, stick it upright like you could reach out and grab it, sword from a stone, in, like, a gold pile near the front.
2: When they get into the room, are you hiding or are you shapeshifting? How amorphous
3: do you think my size is? I'm not sure if I'm coin-sized or
2: if I'm medium-sized, like box-sized. I think at this point in your life cycle, uh, I I would absolutely. Hold on, let me double-check what size category fucking mimics are.
1: You're bigger than a bread box.
2: I think you're going to be in the medium. I just wasn't sure if they would hit large. Elder Mimic's hit large. You can get real big if you live long enough. It turns out that if your main source of food is people who carry weapons, you don't see the end of your life cycle often. Aram, one of the things you were told ahead of time, this is part of the contract, is to prevent the escape of the Mimic, they are shutting the door behind you.
1: Raymond is in the middle in this like suit of power armor with his fist slamming into his other hand and like every time it does, it sparks with electricity. Egon and Peter both have these crossbow weapons out. They kind of like cock them like shotguns, and you see lights begin to charge up on their backpacks. Peter's got his weapon out and is kind of sweeping the room, while Egon puts his weapon back, pulls out his little magic-sensing umbrella, and begins to wave it over the sword.
2: Do you have anything that would allow you to detect a shape-changer?
1: No, I have things that could detect ghosts, and I have things that can detect magic, but I do not have things that can detect monsters.
2: Then, as you're, like, riling through the, the dials, just, like, Double check, make sure. They said it was a mimic, but if it's not a mimic, you know, it's good to know. But you have no means to detect a shape changer. As shape changers in DD, strictly speaking, are not a magical effect. Detect magic doesn't work on them.
1: It's not a ghost, and it's definitely not something that has magic
2: in it. It's not a spell or poltergeist. We're definitely dealing with a mimic. Eon relays that message. I think the moment that
3: you look and say, it's all clear. That's when the rug you're standing on inspecting the sword leaps up and just encloses around you whole. And I think that this mimic has specifically mimicked a rug of smothering.
2: I'm going to have you make an attack roll. You've got surprise. I'll give you your, uh, your bonus to that. Okay, I got an 8 and a 14. It's a 14 get Egon? Egon has an AC of 10. Okay, I'm adding a 5, so it's a 19
3: on the dice. Yeah, it definitely hits. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this a Bite. I think that's fair. I think we have a, a very fangy carpet here. It's just one giant mouth, basically, as it slams shut around me. As a Mimic, all you need is mouth. The Mimic's Bite does 1d8 plus 3 piercing damage plus 1d8 acid damage. 7 piercing damage, and another
2: 3 acid damage. The moment you get tooth into flesh, it burns. So Raymond freaks
3: out. Classic Ray.
1: Just stomps forward, knocking over the sword. Oh, Egon! And he slams his hands around like this pod that is trying to eat him, and he electrifies them, trying to shock this rug.
2: Roll your whatever the fuck for your stupid artificers bullshit.
1: Uh, that is a as a seventeen plus five is twenty two to
3: hit. I am slow. I have garbage armor. Really, my only defense is a pretty big hit point pool. And well, out of that hit point pool,
1: I rolled 7 plus 3, so you take 10 points of damage as my hands clasp around the rug and little bolts of electricity fire out.
2: Ram, I just want you to roll me like a reflex save for Egon. Egon is not strictly uh, grappled at this point, so I'm not going to say that he gets electrocuted, but I just want to know how annoyed he's going to be with Ray after this. Yeah, his dexterity save is 5. Egon can pull in. He's not getting electrocuted. But every once in a while, he like bumps against part of it and it shocks him. And then he like lunges forward and hits a tooth and then it hurts again. Ah. No hit point damage, just active annoyance.
1: When it does peel away from his head, like when it opens up a bit and you can see his head again, his hair is just like, it's like straight up in the air and all shock still.
2: And just a pure face of resentment. (laughs) Just utter Just you. Son of a bitch, Aram, um, you've got one more turn. Tell me how Pete's responding to this, because it seems that you guys have found the mimic. He can't
1: shoot him with his beam bag. He, he cannot activate the bifur the the bifurcation beam. It's far too dangerous to fire at a person, and he's he's smarter than Ray. So Peter is going to instead prepare for the next round. So he pulls out, like he reaches onto his back and he's got this huge cylinder and he slams it into the ground, grabs the top of it, pops two handles out, turns it, and these legs fold out from the middle and slam into the ground. The middle tube kind of lifts up on these legs, turns over, rotates, and then opens up, and this energy just starts building inside it as he grabs a handle on the back and pulls it up like a bazooka, aims it towards this creature, but doesn't fire yet, just is waiting to take a
2: shot. Rob, it is your turn. You have been electrocuted. It has. It is, I assume unpleasant, but you also have a food in you.
3: I do have a food in me, but I also see this turret, and I did just get electrocuted. I think that I am going to use my action to to polymorph into my blobby form and Scrooge McDuck my way into the gold beneath your feet, like the trash compactor monster from Star Wars. Like you might see gold moving, but I'm I'm repositioning and I am now like hiding in the pile of gold.
1: Can Peter take a shot at the moving gold at like disadvantage?
2: We'll call this fair because strictly speaking, you should get an attack of opportunity. The
1: first roll is a knight a 19, but my second roll. And my second roll is a two. So that is a two plus four, as six as I just unload with this blast of energy that rips across the ground. Coins explode and melt. The whole shelf collapses as it just cuts into the wall, just shoots up everywhere. And then it's just quiet
3: for a second. And I think the tinkling of like three coins as I shift something but you don't know where. (laughs) One coin just rolls out and does that, whoa, whoa,
2: whoa, whoa. (laughs) Rob, I'd just like a a stealth roll for when he inevitably starts actively looking for you. I would say because of all the dust, he should roll that advantage. I mean, if you want the person who is your opponent to roll an advantage, who am I to say no?
1: He's not my opponent, Dylan. We are all on team story.
2: I
3: rolled a 17.
2: Fantastic.
3: Plus 5. So I'm looking at
2: uh 22 to stealth. Then you are exactly as you say, just kind of amorphous, this almost snake-like slithering into these little tunnels, weaving your way through the gold, occasionally just knocking things loose, just enough to like have ambient noise coming from random directions as things sort of scatter and echo in weird ways. Uh, so Dwarven
3: Vault, I think we've got uh, probably all kinds of treasures. We've probably got suits of armor. Yes, definitely. Plenty of treasure chests.
1: Lots of hammers on big pillars.
3: Piles of scrolls and books.
2: Yeah. Your gnomes are left alone in the middle of this vault. So as the dust settles on us,
1: and we're looking around and we cannot see this creature. We all turn and nod to each other and we go back to back in the center of the room, hands out all at once, hands together all at once. We all begin a chanting and then one, two, three, wham! We all slam our hands together. and We all cast Thunder Wave at the same time to just cover the whole area that's basically
2: not us. All three of them are gonna burn the spell slot Rob, I'm going to say that they definitely catch you in the mess.
1: All the coins, everything goes up in like a
3: wave. So I'm making a dexterity save? Yeah. Not my best,
2: but I rolled a 19. Okay, yeah. Then Aram, roll your damage and have it. 2 to 8, okay.
1: And I rolled a 10, so half 10 is 5 points of damage. Imagine the vault
2: guy, the vault manager's probably like, what the Fuck. Just hearing these things echo. Like... There's the mage standing next to the bank manager who just looks over and goes, Oh, that was definitely a thunder wave. I don't care. <laughs> don't ever tell me what it is. Then Rob, we're on We're on you because all three of them cast thunder waves just to make sure they had good coverage. Yep. Also, all the paintings I mentioned b- before, fucking gone. They got insurance. The important thing, as a Mimic,
3: is to know when not to do anything. So although it is my turn, and you have trashed the environment, uh, unknowingly, I think you have, you have enabled
2: a Mimic strategy. You've played into his pseudopod.
3: (laughs) Ew. So you're looking at a ton of wreckage of inanimate objects, uh, a scattered suit of armor, pages flying through the air, a half open chest.
1: It's like if you were looking at a puzzle and saying, find the apple, but then you flip the puzzle.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yep. I suppose, since, since uh, 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 playing by the book, I suppose that my turn is to dodge.
1: When you take the dodge action, you focus entirely on avoiding attacks. Until the start of your next turn, any attack roll made against you has disadvantage if you can see the attacker, and you make dexterity saving throws with advantage. You lose this benefit if you are incapacitated or if your speed drops
3: to zero. Pro tip, players who are listening. If you don't know what to do with your turn and you have analysis paralysis and everyone's looking around and they're like, John, just decide,
2: just say I dodge. That is a good player tip. We're not here for player tips. Cut it out. Rom, your turn. <laughs>
1: It'll be a bonus episode that's like six seconds long. <laughs> <laughs> they all nod, and they all kind of pull out their little blasters. Well, well, Egon and uh, Peter pull out their blasters. Raymond is just, you know, charging up his fist, and they're just going to split up.
2: Raymond has flat out refused to carry one of those weird blaster things, because he's convinced it's going to be the death of him.
1: He saw what happened in testing. Yeah. So he's going to walk up the middle, and then Peter's going to go to the west, and Egon's going to go to the east, and they're just going to basically sweep back and forth from one side of the vault
2: to the next. In that case, I'm going to throw it to you, Rob. Narrate the moment where Aram lays hands on you. I think that Ray is probably uh,
3: going through, poking and prodding, and there's a chest that's really suspicious. I think you open the chest and inside is one of your teammates' blasters. How did that get in there? gonna reach it and grab it? So I think it's time to try and bite your hand off. That's my favorite hand. Which I'll have advantage on because of, of Grappler, because of adhesive and Grappler. There's a little bit of me that's hoping for a crit. Uh Uh-oh, I know you can't see this on the podcast, but your boy rolled a 20.
2: He even
1: showed it to us on
2: his camera. What an
1: honest man you are.
2: (laughs) I can never remember how 5th edition, like, finally said. Yeah, we need a house rule for critical rolls. The way I always roll it is roll double
3: dice. I'm rolling uh, double dice, and unfortunately for you, the bite is by default 2d8.
1: Oh, that is unfortunate for him.
3: So uh, you're going to take 2d8 piercing damage, plus 3. So we're looking at 4, 8, 11 piercing damage and 10 acid damage.
1: Raymond's got like a big power suit. He was the one who shocked you with those big arms. So you have like bitten through one of those big, huge arms. What if you bite into a cable and then I just get electrocuted by my own suit? and then kind of fall to my knees as you pull, as you just bite through the arm.
2: And then I'm going to say that we're going to lean into like mimic horror here because mimics are medium creatures. This mimic is actually bigger than you, Aram. It just consumes Raymond. It's a couple of bites, but it's one of those things where it bites and the shock stops you from screaming. And then it just (laughs) consumes.
1: They turn just in time to basically see something swallow up the back end of Raymond as you f- obliterate him. They both shout, and they both turn and break their cardinal rule. They fire towards the same target at the same time, and that is very risky, because you do
2: not want to cross your bifurcation beam. You should never fire both beam bags at the same target. You don't want to cross the beams. Don't want to cross the beams. Peter rolls a.
1: Peter rolls a natural twenty. Okay, so Peter rolls a twenty-four. Egon rolled a natural one. Oh no! <laughs> so we have we
3: have a bit of oh, we have no. a bit of either end here. Yeah. You so all, I've got. Do you a, all have critical failure?
1: It even stole my natural twenty. I would. Do I still get to do that damage though, right? You still
2: get your thing, that still happens. You still get to use the bonus action to engage the thing, and it's now tethered. You got your fucking proton pack. All right. Okay. It did the thing. It did literally all of the things immediately. It did. Good job, us. Such a good design job. Double dice, so
1: 48 is 17 points of damage as this arcing blast just slams into you. and then immediately followed by a second beam,
2: which crosses it. Let me double check this. So the way you have this written, Aram, should two bifurcation beams cross, they create a massive explosion, 10d8 radiant damage, in a 60-foot radius from the point where the two beams merged. DC 15 save for half. Dexterity check. So, not even worrying about the cascade effects that are going to come of this, Everybody's going to make a dexterity 15 save.
1: All right, Egon rolled a 8.
3: I rolled a natural 1.
1: So Peter rolls a 8. That is a fail. Egon rolls a (laughs)
2: 8. That is also a fail. Then as this is a natural effect, I'm going to roll 10 v 8. So here's, here's the good news. It's a total of 43 damage, which for a full health mimic would have been survivable. Right. I'm not a full health. mimic. You're not. Have, we are atomized. Yeah. So this is this thing goes off. And then that wave just starts to build as the two things are cross. And Peter looks at Egon and Egon looks over and goes,
1: Raymond was the heart of this group, right? That's why they all reacted so badly because Raymond is the glue that holds this trio together. So as they look at each other, Raymond looks at Peter and he's like, I never liked you. And Peter looks back and he's like, <laughs> same.
2: And then they just get wiped out. At the end of 30 minutes, there's a lot of clanking noise. The moment it comes open, it's got this deep vacuum suck where all of the fucking air was just evaporated out of the room. One of the halflings actually gets sucked in and rolls a couple of feet. He lands in a pile of goop Ew. Is mildly acidic. His hand is red for the rest of the day. They see scorched skeletons in the corner, so we don't have to pay them, right? And as they step into the vault
1: and start to explore it, some of the guards come rushing in because of the huge explosion. And a single coin rolls out of the vault, past everyone to the back of the room, and right into a guard's boot. He looks down, sees this platinum coin, looks around, quickly... Snatches it up and drops it in his pocket.
4: don't by the and go home Yeah, yeah, yeah Call up DJ we out of here I need a new captain of the ship to steer Hey 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 Now everybody follow my lead from Rudy Cinemax to the old school way.
1: If you want to suggest creatures for future episodes or talk about the monsters we've discussed on the show, head on over to our Discord. You can find links on killeverymonster.com.
4: And we'll see you next time. For Kill, kill every motherfucker. Oh, oh. Right. That's, function, that's my function. Be smoked off Keystone. No slumping. Tell me how you want it. I can crash your question. Middle child, wild. I ain't nothing to fuck with. They ask me, Hulk, how you get toned? I told them I was at the gym all night long. Weightlifting my dreams along with shows. If you try to pick them up, they wouldn't leave the flow. Why well, you need to pop the trunk for the gun, though? I'm rocking trust sleeves. That's the gun show. There's only one goal, and that's to come up. I'm going in. Somebody hold my nun trucks. I got the one up. I don't need the one up. He said I jump. Them, but that was just a soft punch with the left hand man. You a puny banner. Oh, you didn't know? Super is my standard. I'm the man that your girl ain't seen before. And my girl is the one that you're feeling for. They look at me and they wonder if I'm a clone of the lost wonder. Colossus arose. Might have seen me in the Halloween wardrobe. Rockin' a bigger fur coat than Mackerel. All I gotta do is flex, I don't have to glow. I'm so cool, I don't even have to smoke.
1: The ancient mountainous deserts to the south of Feyrun are the places where mortals first raised great temples and unlocked powerful secrets. A kingdom once fractured by infighting has been united under the iron claw of the red dragon Chazar. The Great Lizard's quest for immortality has become an all-consuming obsession. His need for worshippers has set him on a path against the old gods of these lands. And they will not go quietly. An unlikely cabal of deities has banded together to undermine Jazar and ensure that their temples remain protected and active. They've traced tendrils of fate to preferred timelines, then selected five mortals who had the best chance of bringing those futures to fruition. You will take on the role of one of these chosen, in Death to the Dragon King. Find out more about this Start Playing Games campaign and all of my other available games at aram.gay.